This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit WOGCC.com. I'm really excited about uh, today to be able to finish our series on doctrine. I sound a lot better than I did last week. For those of you who were here last week, thanks for uh, your prayers. I went back and watched those uh, messages. Man, I was, uh, I was medicated. So it was, uh, no, it was a lot of fun. I, I actually thought that uh, despite my not feeling well last week, that the sermon turned out well um, with uh, being able to communicate to you the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. Had a lot of people actually share with me throughout the week just how they weren't as solid on that and didn't really understand why they needed to know that, but so grateful that they had that teaching and um, were able to be more solid on what they believe and more importantly, why they believe it. Because we all need to be secure in why we believe what we believe. Amen? We can sing about it. We can memorize it. But if you don't know why you believe what you believe, then every time something new comes along or any time that you're challenged, you're not standing on anything that's solid and you could easily be swayed to one way or another. If you've hung around church very long, you've identified, man, I've been a part of some church fads. I don't know about you, but I can definitely uh, say that uh, I'm glad some of the church fads I've experienced are gone. Um, but uh, that's just the life of church and that's the life life of uh, a Christian, we see these things come and go where all of a sudden some speaker will rise to popularity and he'll be the next big thing. And then something happens where either he kind of loses his falling or, or, or where something happens and, and it's this big public thing. And you, you see that kind of stuff happen and you just wonder, man, everybody followed this person or read this book and it was all about this person or this particular thing. You need to know why you believe what you believe and not just because somebody else said it, but because God said it. Amen. And God trumps anybody. It doesn't matter how powerful they are, or how popular they are, or how good of a speaker they are. So I try to do my job every week to equip you to know why you believe what you believe. So that's why we've been going through this series on doctrine, because I want you to be solid. That's my desire is for you to be a solid believer who has a strong foundation. Jesus said, don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes along or anyone who comes along with some other message, because there's a lot of voices in the wind and a lot of things that would try to sway you. And you need to know what you believe and you need to know why you believe it. So we're going to wrap up the series on doctrine today by talking about the doctrine of the millennial reign. So we're going to be going through parts of the book of Revelation today. So if some of you have never uh, ventured to the book of Revelation, uh, it's going to be a fun day for you. For those of you who have, um, it's going to be maybe a little challenging for you because I believe that some things God's going to show you is going to help you and maybe challenge you and encourage you as well. So anytime that we look at the book of Revelation, we need to get rid of this idea that we have to figure everything out. We just have to get rid of this idea. We have to figure everything out. Um, Because the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book. It is a prophetic word. And because it's a prophetic word, we need to treat it like we treat all prophecy. And you know how you need to treat prophecy? Like prophecy. (laughs) You don't need to treat it as if it's some puzzle or some mystery that's meant for you to figure out and understand every little thing. You need to remember about the prophecies in the Bible that were given about a coming Messiah. And there was a group of people in Jesus' day that studied the Scripture more than anyone else 
that had lived. They studied all the prophetic scripture. They knew all the scripture. They had picked it apart. They debated it. They argued it. They came up with their own theories, their own thesis, and they taught them, and they were dogmatic about it. And these people were known as the Pharisees. They were the most well-educated, well-scripture-studied people on the planet during the life of Jesus, but they missed Jesus because he did not come the way they figured out he was supposed to come in their eyes and in their minds. They had already predetermined how Jesus was supposed to come, how the Messiah was supposed to make his entrance based upon their own hypothesis and based upon their own intense, rigorous study of Scripture that they taught dogmatically to other people, but they left no room for God to be God because they figured God out. And when Jesus came on the scene, they missed him. Because Jesus would say over and over again, as it is written, this is what I'm doing because it was prophesied about me, that you would know that it's me. And they missed him because that wasn't the way that they thought it was supposed to go. And there's a lot of voices out there concerning end time events. And there's a lot of voices out there concerning the book of Revelation. And some people get extremely dogmatic in their position with end time events, and they think they've got it all figured out. And then they teach these things, and we just accept it. And then we could be just like the Pharisees in Jesus' day of those that get so dogmatic about thinking our way is the way, and we ascribe to a certain tribe. For those of you who are experts in the book of Revelation, maybe you're a premillennial dispensationalist, maybe you're an amillennialist, maybe you're a postmillennialist. It doesn't matter what you are. Maybe you're a millennial millennialist. But whatever it is that you have heard that you have ascribed to, if you have studied or, 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 or come to a conclusion about the book of Revelation, I would warn you, be very careful of that because it's a prophetic book. Now, prophecy in Scripture is not given for you to figure out what is going to happen, but rather when it does happen, prophecy is given so you will recognize that it's what God said would happen. Do you remember on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit fell and the people began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance? What did Peter the disciple of Jesus stand up and say during that time. He stood up and said, this is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So what he was doing was he was affirming that what was happening was of God and that it was something that was prophesied about thousands of years prior, but this was the arrival of the thing that had been foretold about, the thing that had been prophesied of. And that's how prophecy is meant to be interpreted, that you're watchful of it, so you need to read it. You don't need to ignore it. You need to read it, and you need to be aware of it, so that way when what God said would happen happens, you go, there it is. And that's basically what Peter was saying on the day of Pentecost. This is that. Jesus did the same thing over and over in his life. You will see all throughout the Gospels little sayings like, he did this one instance or did this one thing to fulfill the Scripture that was written that said he would do this and this and this. And you see that all throughout Jesus' life. That's the purpose of prophecy. So when things happen, you will be aware that it's God doing what he said he was going to do. And it's not spelled out in clear, plain language, because if it were, if someone had attributed all of the things that Jesus did to Jesus, and they said, he's going to be born on this day, at this time, in this location, talk about no room in the inn, there would have been no room in the stable. There would have been no room over there where Jesus was born, because everybody who was expecting a child that day would have traveled there thinking they were going to give birth to the Messiah. But instead... It was shrouded in the prophetic language 
that gives somewhat of a mystery to it. But when it happens, you go, oh, wow, that totally makes sense. That was what God meant. And you can affirm and see the faithfulness of God. So when you look at the book of Revelation, don't be afraid of it. I remember as a kid being afraid of end-time teaching or end-time preaching. And maybe if you grew up in church, you were afraid of that stuff too. I remember hearing sermons about the end times and hell and about angels and demons and beasts and dragons and blah! I was so afraid. I remember my mom had to calm me down because I couldn't sleep, worried about the rapture and all these things that were, that were in, in the Bible that I was being preached at and told about, and I was scared of it. And so oftentimes, if I'm confused about it or if I'm scared of it, what will I do? I'll just avoid it, right? And a lot of times, Christians avoid the book of Revelation because they don't understand it. And they want someone to explain it to them. But the problem with them wanting people to explain it to them is that people who study the book of Revelation oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, will teach it and preach it from their predisposition of what they think and what they believe. And they do that in order to say, this is what this means. And this is how the book of Daniel ties into Revelation. And this is how the the thing about Thessalonians ties in. And it's not really this many years. It's really this many years. That's really tricky when you start doing that stuff. And some of those guys may be right, but some of them may be wrong. They can't be dogmatic about it because otherwise you cross over into that same territory that the Pharisees did trying to figure out the Messiah. Okay. So does that make sense to everybody? The reason I explain this to you is because before we read the book of Revelation and we start reading scriptures, or before you ever try to read the book of Revelation on your own, it's not for you to try to figure all this stuff out, but it is important that you read it. So let me give you the practical side of the book of Revelation. What? That's right. There's a practical side to the book of Revelation, an extremely practical side to the book of Revelation that'll actually help you. Why don't you go over to Revelation chapter 1? Why don't we start there? Revelation chapter 1. Let's just look at verse 1, and let's read through verse 3. Okay, Revelation 1 and 1, we're going to read through verse 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, the disciple of Jesus, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So that's very important because it validates the fact that John is not some loon writing about all these crazy things. He was actually a disciple who experienced the life of Jesus on this earth. And so he's kind of giving his credentials there to let, it, let you know, I'm the guy that hung out with Jesus while he was here on the earth. This is not some crazy person. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So if something I read is supposed to bless me, I want to read it, right? A lot of people stay away from the book of Revelation because it's confusing to them. That's because they miss the purpose of the book of Revelation. If you miss the purpose of the book of Revelation, of course you're going to stay away from it because it may be scary or it may be confusing. And I want to get over that hurdle today. And so my desire is, is that through teaching you This book of Revelation and the way that we're going to teach it through the doctrine of the millennial reign, I want you to see some things perhaps you haven't seen before to take away some of the fear and the hesitation that you've had about enjoying this book and being blessed by it. Because John said, you're blessed if you read this thing, okay? So I want to read this thing so I can be blessed. He said, and then you need to keep what is written in it. If I'm going to keep what's written in it, I need to understand it, right? I don't know how to keep what I don't understand. 
And John said, I'm supposed to understand it. I'm supposed to read it. I'm supposed to be blessed. I want to figure that part of it out. And so we need to take away all the weirdness from it. So here's the practical side to the book of Revelation. It was written by John, the disciple of Jesus. And he wrote it during imprisonment on the island of Patmos. All right? This was a place of exile. Basically, they exiled John here by himself where he was alone writing this book on this island of Patmos where he was imprisoned. And he wrote this letter, specifically certain parts of it, to seven churches that actually existed. Now, I have a map that I want to show you on the screen. Check this map out. You see here the island of Patmos where John was. And then you see the order of the churches in which he wrote to them. They are on somewhat of kind of a bell curve looking shape. And the reason that John, that, that John wrote to these towns is because that is a historical mail route that was taken by people to deliver mail to these different cities. And John wrote from Revelation 2 to Revelation 3 specific messages for these specific churches in each one of these towns in that specific order, not for some super spiritual reason other than that was the way the mail got delivered. That's the way the mail got delivered. And he was writing to each one of them because he knew Ephesus would read it first. He knew that Smyrna would read it second. He knew that Pergamos would read it third. And so he wrote to them in the order in which they would actually read the letters and the letters would get delivered. That was one purpose of it. Now, some people want to super spiritualize the meaning of the seven churches, and you can do that, and you may be right. I don't know. There's a lot of truth that we can pull from that. If you want to look at it from a dispensationalist point of view to say that the seven churches represent seven different ages, I don't know if that's what it represents or not. I do know that that was a historical mail route, and I do know he wrote to them in the order that the mail got delivered. All right? So when you look at it that way, it helps you to see that there's some practicality to what John was doing. Now, who were these seven churches? That's a very important question that we also need to answer. During John's time, there were seven churches in each one of these cities. And each one of these churches had specific stuff going on that John prophetically wrote about to deal with their situation during their lifetime, as well as things that we can glean from and learn, because those prophetic words are still good for us today. But he was actually dealing with things that were happening in each one of those churches, and he was speaking on behalf of God to those churches as a prophetic word. Some churches, he said, Ephesus, you guys are doing good, but guess what? You've forgotten your first love. You need to get your act together. He said, otherwise, he said, the presence of God is going to be removed from where you're at. Some churches, he said, you guys are serving the poor, you're doing good, but guess what? I hear that there's sexual immorality in your camp. You need to clean that stuff up. And then he says to one church, the church of Laodicea, he says, I've heard that you guys are not hot or cold. You, you aren't on fire for God and you're not, you're not cold towards God either. You're lukewarm. He said, and because of that, God's going to spit you out of his mouth if you don't repent and you need to get from God the things you need to get from God. The, 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 the salve that'll help you see clearly. He said, the garments from, from him that you put on, not garments that you try to, in your own holiness, in your own works, that you try to, to present yourself as something that you're not. And he wrote to these churches that were dealing with those issues at that time, and he was writing a prophetic word to them to help those churches return and, uh, to, to the very heart of God and to do what God had created and called those churches to do. Now, that's the practical side to what John was doing, because you've got to remember what's going on in these churches during this time? Persecution. 
heavy, heavy persecution. These churches are being uh, uh, sought after by the Roman government in order to behead the, the Christians, to burn them alive, to do all sorts of terrible things to Christians. That's what was happening. And John wrote to these churches the prophetic words of God that were given to him on the island of Patmos to encourage them and let them know that there is a battle happening, there's a battle that will happen, but we still win in the end because we're with Jesus. And that's the message of the book of Revelation. And that's why people who were being persecuted in these seven churches would be blessed by reading it. Because they would see that even though the trials they're experiencing are hard, they would see there's more trials to come. But then they would see in the end that we still win if we hold fast to the confession of our faith. That they see we still win if we still put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ and we don't waver when persecutions and trials and difficult times come. That's the message of the book of Revelation. Is that in the end we win. It's a good book. It's a positive book. It's a book that says Jesus is coming back. You don't have to live in fear and isolation. You don't have to be afraid to speak the truth about what you believe. Because in the end, we're going to win regardless of all these dark things that are coming. And they're, they're coming. And we see some of those things throughout the book of Revelation. And he was telling them, I know it's hard now and it's going to get harder. But don't give up. Don't quit. Because in the end, we still win. And that's the message of the book of Revelation. And that's why you're blessed for reading it. Because if you're struggling, if you feel like giving up, if you feel hopeless, you can see that even though things are dark in your life and things get dark in this world before the return of the Lord, you still see that there's hope. That you know that He is faithful and you know that we're still going to be victorious, not because of you, not because of me, not because of some great military strategy, but because of God has prophesied and said that in the end we win because He's the one who has given us the victory through Jesus. That's the message of the book of Revelation. So I hope that helps you exhale a little bit about the book of Revelation. And as you read it and as you look at it being written to these seven different churches who were, who were experiencing very dark days that we were seeing that Jesus is the hope of the world. And let me give you this too. When you look at end-time teaching, prophecy, the book of Revelation, a lot of people begin to look at the things that are happening in their world, in their space, and they go, oh, the end times are near. The end times are near. Oh, man, they're, they're, the, the, the terrorists are, are, are shooting up nightclubs. The terrorists are coming on college campuses. Oh, it's the end times. You need to broaden your worldview just a little bit, just a smidge, if that's what you think. You need to get out of this idea that the Bible was written for Americans and it's all about America. Now, we live in a great country, but we don't realize how good we've got it sometimes. Because what you call tribulation and what you call end times, people in other lands have been experiencing this for thousands of years and to far worse degrees than you and I will ever know. Don't you think that in Nazi Germany, that, Hitler, uh, that under Hitler's regime, don't you think there were people that thought this was the end times? Don't you think that under the reign of, in England, under the Tudors, that the Christians thought they were living in the end times? You remember Bloody Mary? She was called Bloody Mary because she killed Christians? You, you remember that, that during some of the great wars that have happened that we've read about in the history books, don't you think that some of those people thought this is the end? These are the end times. So just because something is affecting your worldview or your pocketbook, or just because uh, uh, of, of the way that the political scene 
ends up unfolding. Everybody wants to say the next president of every time we have a new president must be the Antichrist. <laughs> That's what people think. Obama was the Antichrist, or Bush was the Antichrist, now Trump's going to be the Antichrist. No, that's, that's not the way. Or, or somebody wants to try to figure out who's going to be the Antichrist. And everybody, let's look at the book of Revelation. Let's look at what all these different things surrounding this person is going to be. That's not the purpose of the book of Revelation for you to figure out who the Antichrist is. It's so when he shows up, you go, that's him. <laughs> that's, that's the purpose. And so when he shows up, you're not deceived. Not so you can figure out who it is before he shows up. Who cares who it is before he shows up? He's coming. He's going to show up, whether in your lifetime or not. He's coming. The Antichrist will be someone, definitely, that we see prophesied about in Scripture. But at the same time, it's not for you to sit around, worry, and fret, and try to figure it out. And so when you see him, you go, I'm not listening to that joker because I know who he is. I'm not going to follow him and be deceived. That's the whole purpose. Stop making it about something that it's not. Stop being afraid of it. Stop looking at it through a, a, a jaded lens. So here's the deal. All right. John wrote this letter to these churches, and he used a lot of symbolic language, a lot. There's a lot of symbolism scattered all throughout the book of Revelation. And we need to go, okay, if he's writing with a lot of symbolism, why? Why is he using so much symbolism? Well, there's two reasons. And one of them is because that's the way God showed it to him which is probably the most important reason, right? Because God showed him these things to write down through this angel. He said, now, here's the things that I'm going to reveal to you. Write these things down. Share them with the churches. And he showed, the, showed him these things in this symbolic language. And so John wrote, wrote those things down. The other part that I believe that the reason symbolism was used, and this is just a theory, um, I can't prove this, but my thought would be that if you're on the island of Patmos, that is a Roman prison island, and you're going to write a letter, and then it passes through the system of whoever brings you food or whoever comes and gets your mail or brings you mail, just like our prisons nowadays, before a letter gets sent out, what happens before the letter gets sent out? They check it, right? To make sure it's not, hey, you know, <laughs> deliver the, the, the saw in my birthday cake, you know, like in the movies or the cartoons where you pull the saw out of the birthday cake and they saw through the bars. You know, they want to make sure that nothing is in this that is going to hurt them or something that's plotting some type of, of, of escape plan or something like that. So wouldn't you think that the Romans, who were experts at uh, torture and experts in imprisonment, wouldn't they have some sort of similar policy if they're allowing mail to go in and out from this island of Patmos, that they would want to check John's stuff? And God gave John this revelation in this language that if a Roman person opened it up and read it, they'd be like, yeah, okay, let's send this. This is kind of weird. And they wouldn't understand it. They wouldn't understand a lot of the, the symbolism. But the Jewish people, they were extremely symbolic in nature, as were the Greek people, and they understood a lot of symbolism. So when they used a dragon in place of giving a name or a person, they would understand what that means. And so when they read this, they're like, wow, they're greatly encouraged by it because they're saying we win over this. Even though we're, 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 we're suffering here, this is a prophetic letter of encouragement that was shrouded in a great deal of mystery except to those who read it because he said you'd be blessed if you read it and blessed if you do what's written in it. And so there were some things in there that they had to see in between the symbolism. So here's the big question then with the book of Revelation. If it's written symbolic, what parts then do you interpret symbolic 
and what parts do you interpret literally? This is where people get into big debates. This is where people get divided. I don't want you to be divided with me, and so I'm going to share some things today that'll be opinion, and I'll let you know when it's my opinion. And then there'll be some things that I can share for a fact because we see it clearly and plainly in Scripture. I will share those things to you uh, because I want you to understand the truth, and I want you to understand this doctrine uh, of the millennial reign. I don't want you to be afraid of prophecy, and I don't want you to be afraid of the book of Revelation. I don't want you to be confused at all. So I want you to understand this is important stuff. God wants you to see it. He wants you to know about the victory. So we have to decide, though, when we look at this, I personally believe that because the book of Revelation was written symbolically, I believe that most of it is to be interpreted symbolically, all right? It's symbolism. What's, so when you say a thousand years, does it really mean a thousand years, like a literal thousand years, or is that symbolic? Because the Bible uses numbers and years as symbols also, not literal years. Sometimes it's literal years, but when it's written in a symbolic context, is it to be taken symbolic or literal? That's where people get divided because they think this is going to happen because it's going to be this many years and this much time. What if that's symbolic language with the rest of it? Do I know that for a fact? No, I don't know. But at the same time, you need to look at it objectively instead of saying this is when everything's going to happen and how it's all going to unfold. So we need to keep that in mind when we approach this doctrine of the millennial reign. So this is what our church doctrine reads like. The millennial reign. We believe that our Lord Jesus Christ will return with his saints from heaven to rule and reign for 1,000 years on the earth, after which the new heaven and new earth will be established. And then there's the scriptures for it. That's the doctrine of the millennial reign. And the first thing that we need to clearly understand is that Jesus is coming back. Right? So these are the key takeaways from today. Jesus is coming back. And we need to know that. Revelation 19 and verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven open. Remember, John is seeing this revelation. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on the horse, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We can clearly see here that this is the same thing that Christ talked about when he was on the earth. He said, listen, I'm going away, but I'm coming again. And this is a little bit more uh, showing and, and unveiling of his coming. So Jesus is coming back. We need to establish that, and we need to know that, and we need to believe that. Now let's look at Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might no longer deceive the nations until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones seated on them were those who the authority uh, to judge was also committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image, nor had received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So that's where we get the scripture for the doctrine of the millennial reign. So is a thousand years a literal thousand years or is it symbolic? I don't know. But I do know that in scripture we can see that a thousand years represents a time of completion. And so we see here whether or not it's literal or symbolic, it's a time of completion where we see that Satan is being bound up for a little while. And I love who binds him up. The Bible says an angel came with a key and a chain. Didn't give a name. You know, sometimes you see the name of an angel written in Scripture, like Gabriel or Michael, something like that. This, it's just an angel. So it's almost like this insignificant event, you know. I love the fact that we see the enemy, the devil, we see Satan, the one who has tried to ruin our very lives, is wrapped up and bound up by some nameless angel who's got a key. I think that's awesome. Because we make the enemy to be this huge, big threat, this all-powerful being, and he's not. He's not even significant enough that we know the angel that's going to bind him up. It's not even important. And, and I love seeing that. Now, the nature of this book is apocalyptic and symbolic. So I could be wrong, and you can disagree with me, and that's okay. And I'm not going to think you're a heretic if you disagree with me. And I ask that you not think I'm a heretic if I disagree with you. But I think that the Bible is symbolically using this a uh, thousand years as a term for completion or like a, a fullness of time type saying. And it says the saints are going to reign together with Christ uh, for a thousand years. I, I believe that this is a, a sign of completion. But then we see here that Satan is going to be unleashed for a season. We see that in uh, Revelation 20 where it said he'll be bound up for a little while, but then he'll be released. Look at verse 7 in chapter 20. It says, and when the thousand years are ended... Satan is going to be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Is this a, a physical battle? Is this a spiritual battle that is being described here? I don't know. But what I do see is that Satan is bound for a period of time, whether that be a thousand little years or a period of time, and then he is released. And here's the thing you need to remember about Satan. He is a creative being. It's not like God has this yin and yang thing going on where Satan is like the polar opposite and he's just as powerful as God. He's not. Satan is not as powerful as God on the evil spectrum to where God is on the good spectrum. All right? We need to get that thinking out of our head. That's a thinking that Hollywood has created for us. That there's like, you know, they, they both like have these power beams that come out of their hands and they meet in the middle and they're trying to see who's the most powerful beam and it goes back and forth and they're shooting their power beams. That's not how this thing works to where Satan is an equal to God just on the evil spectrum as where God would be on the good spectrum. That's not the way this works. Satan is a created being his name was Lucifer, and he was an angel in the very throne room of heaven. And the Bible says that he began to have uh, uh, this pride thing come up to where he began to say, I'm going to exalt my throne above God's throne, and I'm going to make my name known more than God's name known. And he begins to elevate himself, and because of that, God cast him out of heaven, and he fell because God will not share his glory is reserved for him and him alone. And Satan, now being ostracized from the very presence of God, 
The only power that he has on this earth is the power that you and I give him. And he's using the same tricks he used in the beginning. Because you remember when Satan first came on the scene in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden and everything's perfect, he didn't come in and put some voodoo on Adam and Eve. All he did was say a lie. He said, if you eat this fruit, God knows you'll be like God. And so therefore, God's holding out on you. Don't you want to have what God's holding back from you? You're actually going to know good from evil if you eat this fruit. Your eyes are going to be open. You'll be like God, not someone who is having to submit to God. You'll be like God. Isn't that the same lie that the enemy still shares with us today? It's the same old trick. It's the same lie that makes our children rebel against things we want them to do. Because here Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden in perfection, and then Satan says they're holding back, God's holding back on you. Isn't that the same lie that your kids believe? Isn't that the same lie that you believe that caused you to want to rebel against mom and dad? There's something you want to do that they say no to, but you feel like because they say no, that they're holding something away from you that's good. That they're keeping you from experiencing something that's good. And so because of that, you want to go experience it anyway, and you don't care what they say. And that's the attitude that oftentimes kids take with their parents when they feel like their parents are withholding something good from them. And they want to sneak around, and they want to try to go and do the thing anyways. But mom and dad, are you really trying to keep good things from your children? No. What are you trying to do? You're trying to protect them. You're trying to actually give them the best that they could have in your home by having the rules that you have. It's not for their harm. It's actually for their good. But they don't believe that if they don't think that you're really out for their best interest. And Adam and Eve were faced with the same temptation. Does God really have our best interest in mind? Is God really good? Is God really blessing us with everything? Or is there something else that he's keeping from us? And if there is, I want it. And that's the lie Satan gave them. Satan said, there's something God's holding back from you. And it's so good. And you want it, don't you? And Eve and Adam were standing there and they were like, yeah, we do. Instead of trusting what God said, they wanted the thing they thought God was holding from them. It's the same lie he says to you today, same lie he says to me today. And the more we believe his lies, the more we actually empower his influence in our lives. He has no power. It's not like he's putting some voodoo or juju on you. It's the fact that you believe the lie. The things you struggle with now in your life are often a result of a lie you have believed that the enemy has spewed. You're not worth anything. You're always going to be fearful. You're always going to be anxious and worrisome. You're never going to have anything. You're always going to be looked at as this person or that person. And he, be- he feeds that lie to you because Jesus said he's the father of all lies. And then when you believe that lie, guess what? You give him power. You give him authority. But guess what? Jesus came and took all authority back from him. And you and I are in Christ. And when we're in Christ, we can now know the truth. And the truth will set us free. Amen, somebody? That's why the truth is such a powerful thing. Because the longer you believe that lie, the more you're going to empower the enemy's influence in your life. Some people are like, oh, I don't believe that the devil is real. Oh, let me tell you, folks, he is very real. The Bible talks about the fact that he's real. Jesus faced him in the desert. He is real, and he is still speaking lies, trying to get you to believe those lies. And the greatest lie he tries to get the church to believe and tries to get the world to believe is that he doesn't exist. And if he can get you to believe that lie, 
then you're left alone with your struggles instead of knowing that there's an enemy that is trying to steal, kill, and destroy, but there is a God who has come, who has given His Son to say that you can have life and life abundantly. And if He can get you to doubt that He exists, then He can get you to doubt the very existence of God, the thing that will actually set you free and set you on the right path. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching better than y'all are. Amen. Today. Um, but here's the thing about Satan. He will ultimately be defeated. Oh, come on. I said he'll ultimately be defeated. So here's the thing. Now, Satan was bound and then he's loosed. That's weird. Why was he bound, then loosed? And so remember, he's a creative being. He's not all powerful. The only authority he has is authority we give him. And listen, here's the thing. I may be wrong about this, but I think that the loosening of Satan is the final opportunity for man's heart to be turned from trusting that God is good. I believe this act brings glory to God because it acts as a purifier of our hearts to either, again, eat the fruit or trust in God and follow Him. I may be wrong on that because I'm not God. But the way that I see this is that Adam and Eve experienced God's very best, did they not? They were in Eden. They were in perfection. And when we are in heaven with God, when we're during this millennial reign period, when we are actually in the very presence of God and Satan is bound for this season while we're in God's presence... It's almost like we're being put right back in the Garden of Eden, and all of us are being put in the Garden of Eden, not just Adam and Eve, but all of humanity that's put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ is now in this Garden of Eden-type millennial reign where Christ is king and Satan is not a factor. But then he gets loosed for a season because it's almost the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden where you have experienced God's best, but then will you really still trust that God is good? Or do you think there's still a better way? Do you think that there's another way? And Satan is going to be trying to tempt people the same way he tried to tempt Adam and Eve. But are we going to turn after experiencing God's very best in his presence like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden? It's easy to believe God is good in your life when things are bad, right? And you go, God is good because things are bad and I'm hopeful that things are going to get better. But when everything's perfect and there's no more evil and then someone comes along and says, but there's more. That's what Satan did to Adam and Eve, and he's going to have another opportunity to do it again when he's loosed. Now, I don't know if that's the reason why he's being loosed, but that's just my theory, and it makes sense to me, so maybe it'll make sense to you. (laughs) But here's the great news. The great news is that once the period of temptation is over, once that period of temptation of Satan being bound uh, and then loosed again is over, check this out in Revelation 20 and verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, the Antichrist. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's over. It's not like in the movies where the bad guy dies in the end and he's like under a pile of rubble and it's like at the very end of the movie and you see his hand twitch and then it goes to the credits and you're like, oh, they're making a sequel. He didn't die, he's coming back. And he's going to come back. It's like a super mutant, you know, one last time. You know, that's not what's happening here. It's over. Elphine, it's done. It is finished. It's over. It's it. The final end of all forms of all personal evil we will ever know. All suffering, all pain, all wickedness, all evil. It's all gone. And guess what the best part of this is? Is that we will forever be with God. 
We will forever be with God. So here's the thing. Jesus is coming back. Satan will ultimately be defeated, and we will forever be with God. Check this out. This is really awesome. Revelation 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain anymore. The former things have all passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I'll be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the fatherless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He said, listen, he said, if you put your hope and your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. He said, your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life as is written in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. He said, he's looking for those who have, their names have been written in that book. And Jesus talks about In Matthew 6, 1 through verse 20, he talks a lot about rewards in heaven. And I don't know what kind of rewards are going to be in heaven. I really don't. The Bible's not really clear about that. But Jesus says over and over to store up and lay up your treasures in heaven. And I don't know what type of treasures. I don't know what types of different things he's talking about. But I do know that Jesus said that there will be a separation of the sheep from the goats. And the basis of what's going to separate the sheep from the goats of whether or not people produce the fruit in their life of the result of the gospel's impact on their life or not. Or if they just did a lot of lip service. They said all the right things, but there was no fruit in their life. Jesus said there will be a separation from the sheep and the goats. He said, and is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Because is there an actual book in heaven? Doubtful. I mean, Jesus has to at least have like iPads and stuff, right? It has to be like servers in heaven. To keep. No, basically all that means is that God keeps records. All right? Remember, again, the symbolism. I, I don't know if there's an actual book or not, but I do know God keeps records. And I want to make sure that my name is written in that book because I put my hope and my faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? And if you're not sure today where you're going to spend eternity, then you need to be sure. Because Jesus paid it all for you. Jesus paid it all for you. So this millennial reign teaching and message and book on the end times that you're reading today and that we're teaching out of could be more than just a story, that it could be something you actually experience. That you could know whatever struggle you may have right now, it doesn't matter how dark things get, that there's still hope and that forever we will be with our Lord where there's no more crying, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering. To me, that gives me a great comfort and peace regardless of what challenges I may be facing. Amen? But do you have that hope? Because there's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to be in the presence of God forever. And that's through putting your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul talked about this in the book of Romans 
where he said that you need to believe in your heart and then confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He said, with the heart you make this decision, but with your mouth the confession is made because out of your mouth your heart is going to speak. And so whatever's in your heart's going to come out of your mouth. So if you've made that decision, maybe it's time for you to share that with somebody. Maybe today you've made that decision to follow Jesus. You need to speak that out of your mouth. And not just one time. You need to let a lot of folks know. Because we're ambassadors. We're representatives of Jesus Christ in this earth. Amen? And this message should not bring us to a place of necessarily fear, but it should bring us to a place of urgency a place where we recognize that, hey, we're all living in the last days. You know when the last days started? It started on the day of Pentecost because the disciples were talking about we're living in the last days now. And that means that we're on the track of Jesus coming back anytime. And another day that we wake up is one more day closer. And we don't know when that day is going to be. We don't know when that's going to happen. It could happen any moment. And that doesn't need to scare you. You don't need to get your doctrine from Left Behind, the book series, or the movies, right? You need to get your doctrine from the Bible because a lot of that's Hollywooded up. You don't need to be getting your theology from Kirk Cameron. He was on Growing Pains. He always fell off that ladder. He could never get on that ladder. At the end of the show, he always fell off every time. Um, I don't want to get my doctrine from a guy that can't stand a ladder. But <clears throat> the thing is, is that Kirk Cameron's a good dude. And Left Behind is a fine series to read. It's just not where you get your doctrine from. This is where you get your doctrine from. Okay? So don't read Left Behind or watch the movies thinking you're going to get some sneak peek to what's going to happen. It may go down that way. It may, none of that may happen. Absolutely none of that may happen. I don't know if we're all going to vanish and all of our clothes are going to be neatly folded when we... Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen, I, but, but I do know what the Bible says, and that's where I put my hope and my trust, not in trying to figure things out. You remember, every time that prophecy was fulfilled, it was them recognizing it was fulfilled, and they caught it. So that's why it's important for you to read Revelation. That's why it's important for you to know the end times, to not only be encouraged to know that you win in the end because you're a follower of Jesus, so when things come up and when they happen, even though it may have been confusing when you read it, you may not have quite understood exactly all the details surrounding it, you'll go, there it is. I'm not going to listen to that person because I see what that is a part of. Or I'm not going to go this route because I remember reading that and that's what's happening and I'm seeing it happen before my eyes. That's the purpose of all that stuff. So read it. Be blessed by it. Be encouraged by it. But know for yourself why you believe what you believe and what you believe. And be solid in that. So when other teachings and other things come out and somebody else comes out with a new series of books or a new popular movie, that you're not tossed around and getting your doctrine from all that stuff, but that you're getting it from the very Word of God because you, 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 you get into the Word for yourself and you're able to understand it, not just on Sunday, but every day. Amen? That's, that's my greatest joy as your pastor, and I feel like that's my greatest challenge as well, is to empower you as believers, as fellow Christians in this journey with me as your pastor. We're all in this journey together trying to grow and understand Scripture and know God more because the more we know Him, the more we trust Him. And my, my greatest joy is to see you get into the Scripture for yourself and understand more about God on your own. 
I think it's great when you come here. I hope that I'm helping to, to point you in the right direction. But the direction I'm trying to point you in is to be able to do these things on your own. Because you don't need to be dependent upon the pastor for all of the scripture that you are investing in your life. Oh, there they are. Okay, I was waiting for them. Sorry, I was, I was waiting for them. You need to take the responsibility as a Christian, the personal responsibility, to invest. And I'm trying to empower you and show you that, listen, you may not be a pastor. You may not take the time that I take to study, and that's okay. We have different roles, but I want to guide you to where you're not intimidated by it, to where you never do it on your own, because the enemy would love to keep you out of the Scripture and make you think you can't understand Revelation or you can't understand certain things about the Bible when you can, and I want to make sure you know that. Amen, somebody? So you need to know where you're at with God, and I want you to know that you know that you know. I want you to be for sure and certain and confident that you put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're not sure, then today's the day. Not tomorrow, not five minutes later. Stop wrestling with it. Stop ignoring it. Stop trying to put it off. You need to do business with God. If your conscience is being pricked, if something is stirring on the inside of you and you're feeling drawn to something and you don't know what it is and you don't know what to do with it, I'll tell you exactly what to do with it. Submit and let God work in your heart what he's trying to work in your heart. That's the Holy Spirit trying to draw you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit does that through bringing you to a place of conviction, bringing you to a place of repentance where you recognize your sinful state and you recognize your need for a Savior and then you reach out to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that I have broken your laws. I recognize that I have rebelled against you just like that teenager rebelling against that parent thinking they're withholding something. But I see that you really want what's best for me. And so because of that, I accept Jesus as the perfect gift, as that free gift that you've given me. And I accept Jesus as my Savior, and I want to give my life to Him and put my faith and my hope and my trust in Him. Because you can't forgive yourself. You can't be the one who makes yourself right in the eyes of God. Only Jesus can do that. And when He does it, He does it. And you're His, and you're sealed. And you can rest in the fact that you belong to Him. But if you haven't made that decision, today is the day. And you need to let somebody know you made that decision. Or if you need someone to pray with you, that's fine too. We'll have people up here at the end of service that will be available to pray with you. Let them know. Say, I need to let you know that I became a Christian today. They would love to know that. They would love to pray with you. Or if you don't know how to become a Christian and you need someone to explain to you, come seek me out or, or talk to one of our prayer partners or, or talk to one of our pastors or, or, or give me a call or something. Just do it sooner than later. I want to make sure that I know that I know that I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm not talking about what did you grow up as. I'm not talking about what can you recite, what did you memorize, what forms have you gone through, have you learned what to do and when to do it. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what makes you a Christian. I don't even care if you have been baptized as an infant, as an adult. I want to know, have you received the free gift of grace that was given through Jesus Christ? Because at the end of the day, when you stand before God, that's really the only thing He's going to be concerned about. Did you receive the gift of salvation? Not did you learn when to stand up, when to sit down, and what to recite when, the, when, when you were supposed to recite it. Because this is a heart thing. And I want you to know that you know that you know that you belong to God because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you did, but because you've received what Christ has done. And if you don't know that today, then I want you to be certain that you know that before you leave. So find me, talk to one of our prayer partners make that decision today. 
thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.